Did you see the stylish kids in the riot? Shoveled up like mocks, said the night on fire, wombles bleed. Trunches and shields, you know I cherish you, my love. Welcome to the Young IPA Podcast. I'm James. This is Pete. G'day, everyone. It is April the 2nd. This is episode 103, and we have a huge show for you guys coming up. We're going to be airing part two of Renee Gorman and Christina Hofsommer's In Conversation. Mm. Uh, we had a lot of great feedback for part one last week, so here comes part two. And we're also going to be talking to IPA research fellow Kurt Wallace, who is coming to us live from Canberra. The scene of the budget. He's going to be there in the budget lockup tonight. It's his first budget lockup. He is excited and he is going to tell us what's going to be in the budget and what should be in the budget. And he's also going to be talking us through his latest report on unemployment in Australia. Free uh, toasted sandwiches in the budget lockup. That's what the they always tell me. Yep, uh, there are. And uh, the one I went there one year because we were filming a budget video. This is like three or four years ago, really? and I was producing the uh, like budget response video. Uh, all I had to do, I think I've told this story on the podcast before, but anyway, all I had to do was just make sure that three numbers that were in the budget paper were going to be in our script. That took me roughly 15 minutes. The budget lockups, two hours. I played international cricket captain for about an hour and 45 minutes. Uh, to the much of the chagrin of a lot of my economics friends who have to- said me uh, that their professional goals include getting invited to the budget lockup. And it was uh, in- insinuated that I didn't take it seriously enough. Well, I'm sure Kurt will spend a lot of time playing computer games. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's got a lot of... Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to lead Essex to the uh, county championship title. Anyway. Um, oh, wow. That is deep. That is that's deep. That's a deep cut. All right. Uh, so, anyway, let's get into some stories because we'll be talking about that with Kurt later in the show. Uh, so, I think the big story for the IPA, at least this morning, it's getting passed around the office quite a lot, is uh, Executive Director, Grand Poobar of the IPA, <laughs> if you will. John Roskin was on Q&A last night and Pete and I watched it. Uh, it I kept half an eye on it. <laughs> it takes a lot for to make Pete and I watch Q&A. Evidently, it takes a lot Nina, to just to listen to the show who's on her phone. But uh, Pete and I watched Q&A and, yeah, Pete, what did you think? You kept one eye on it, you said? Yeah, I, well, I kept half an eye on it. My favourite bit was John Roskin saying he put the Greens last because they're worse for the nation than one nation. Mm-hmm. Which was like... Which a very good round. Did you hear, like, uh, when he said that, someone actually mooed in the crowd. Not booed, mooed. I like, didn't, I, I definitely that. heard a moo, which was weird. What do you think that means? I just... I think it was like one of those ones where, you know, we talk about on the show, everyone's got their own little bubble and they can only hear things through that bubble. So for someone to actually hear that the Greens are a pr- like the biggest threat to Australian democracy, it's like literally the first time they'd ever heard about it. It's just this like out of body experience for them. Just, whoa! Okay. <laughs> Which is literally the noise I heard. So like, not a conscious choice, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Yeah, I think it just came from deep within. Okay. It was like a, a demon being sputtering forth. It wasn't, you know, solidarity with cows or anything like no, that? No, definitely not because the Greens not a big fan of cows as uh, people might have seen Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's interview talking about how cows need new grains because they're fighting too much and it's destroying the planet. Um, I didn't... I, I can't did, be the only one that saw that. That was a wild interview. I did not see that, but um, I, they do spend a lot of time talking about cows, yeah. bodily functions. <laughs> but um, uh, So my other favourite bit was um, when John pointed out that it'll take 140 years to pay off Australia's debt at the current rate. Yeah, that really uh, put a chill through the crowd. People were like, I did hey, like what? Yeah, because it was funny to me that the first two questions were about energy, like the government's one-off payouts for people on energy. And the third question is like, yeah, our debt problem is going to be, like, it's going to take decades and decades and decades to pay off. And everyone's like, oh yeah, there are bigger issues than that. But anyway, um, I thought it was pretty interesting that we finally got to like a very big problem facing Australia, which is how are we going to pay for all of this? That's right. And John was um, was very good, of course. Mm. 
Sorry, <laughs> took a sip of coffee thinking Pete was going to go on a bit of a tangent That's there. That's all and, I had. Uh, I paid dearly for it. Uh, anyway, I also liked John. The, John Roskam, Tony Jones dynamic is fantastic. Tony Jones has a searing, searing hatred for John Roskam. Excellent by the point uh, at the end of the show. End of the show where he gets his name wrong. Like, uh, you know, uh, oh, John Ros- uh, Roskam. <laughs> So, so what did he, did he just forget his name or did he... Yeah, he just completely started over the surname, you know, obviously unintentionally, wink, wink. But anyway, uh, I, I like that. And, you know, John couldn't get a sentence out on any of his answers before Tony Jones was coming in. Just like, so you had one kid talking about the portrayal of African youths in the media. Uh, and then Tony Jones immediately asked John what he thought of 18C. And, and the, yeah, it went back to the kid. And he's like, no, I'm really talking about the media at the moment. And it just like... That was funny to me. Like, Tony Jones is just at John about 18C. He wants him on the record about it. That's right. and um, As if, you know, supporting free speech is something you need to be on the record about. That's right. Exactly right. And I think the quicker we get Nina in there, the better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, she would have uh, steered that show a bit better. Uh, I also like John telling uh, Tony Jones, yes, I do want the ABC privatised, which is always fun to watch your reaction. Uh, cool. Um did you have any other thoughts? No, nah, look, that's all I had for that. I think, actually, I did have a very, this morning thinking about this, a very deep existential thought. Oh, wow. wow. That one day, <laughs> it was really, it was new for Jeez. me. Uh, one day, you know, that, that our kids might like not know what Q&A is. That's a sad thought. <laughs> no, that's a good thought. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, Dad, you're like, so old. Yeah, yeah. What's what? what's uh, Q&A? <laughs> anyway. What the hell's a Q&A clap? Yeah, exactly. No, um, people will know what that is. Open last question forever. to the panel. What would it actually take you to go on Q&A? Um, to be more talented. <laughs> to be better at my job. No, no. So Tony Jones calls you up. Uh, oh, he sends up the Pete, uh, the Pete Beacon and he says, yeah. come on Q&A. Would you actually go? Oh, yeah. I went probably. Why not? Nah. I'm a, you could not pay me. Tony Jones would 100% call me Andrew, like better than throughout the show, just to, for the laughs. Nina, would you go on Q&A? Uh, if hope. there's an offer. If there's an offer. She's going to be hosting. I would only those, go so. on Q&A uh, if I got to refer every single question back to the Zodiac Killer. That is the only way I would go. <laughs> yeah, well, this is... You, Try it. A, like, yeah, that that like, would be a good, a good way yeah, to... Yeah, the budget is much like the first of the Zodiac victims. Uh, <laughs> no, no one really saw it coming yet. If you want a platform. Yeah, well, exactly. All right. Okay, so we should move on to another story, Pete, and we will be talking about the budget, which is obviously the big story in Australia today. Mm-hmm. Uh, later in the show with Kurt, he is going to yeah, he's gonna be telling us all about that. But Pete, you want to talk about Kurt's report That's right. this week, which uh, has some overtones. That's right. Uh, Kurt had a report out this week, expanding economic opportunity and international comparison of Australia's labour market regulation. This is really important stuff for young people, of course, because the people that are at most at threat from uh, from strict labour market regulations are young people. Australia ranks 105th out of 140 nations in the world. That's pretty poor, 105 out of 140. That's not great. Mm -hmm. That's like Winter Olympics territory for Australia. Uh, for the inflexibility in wage determination, Australia's regulation is ranked 110th in the world, once again, uh, for the ability of businesses to flexibly hire and fire workers. Tough to sack people, as me and James are living proof of. <laughs> Australia has the third highest minimum wage in the world. So those are the key takeouts of uh, Kurt's report. A quote he had in a media release, put simply, rent control means people line up for rental properties. Price controls mean people line up for bread. And wage controls mean people line up at Centrelink. Of course, he's referring to... Bill Shorten's proposal for a living wage. I thought we agreed all, on all this stuff in the 80s. Yeah. I thought we'd settled on it. 
As I point out, there was a New York Times editorial in the 80s saying minimum wage should be zero. Uh, is that right? This is the point because, you know, we always sound like, like people make us out to be these, you know, Charles Dickens villains whenever we talk about getting rid of the minimum wage. But the question is, why is working for like 18 an hour, mm-hmm. you know, which is below the minimum wage, why is working for $18 an hour worse than not working for New Start, which is like six fifty an hour. Yeah. Like, why is that a worse situation for people to be working for the minimum wage and at least being out and about learning skills and showing that you can perform in a job environment? Yeah, I you're just that, don't get it. You're telling like it's illegal for you to do that. Yeah, exactly. You, you must be on six dollars an hour. Yeah, you must be at six fifty, not learning anything, and sort of just treading water. Anyway, yeah. Kurt covers all that stuff in his report. Yeah, and we might get a few. Uh, we'll talk to Kurt about it briefly as well. We'll just run over some of the stuff. Um, what else so, have you got for me, James? Well, I was going to say, so speaking of uh, budget, you know, a lot of uh, policies are coming out, and one of them is the Labor government's uh, real action on climate change policy. Um, I'm glad we're finally taking real action on climate change. I'm sick of this fake action. Uh, but anyway, uh, Pete, so they've released 10 dot points about what they're thinking about for the new climate policy, and I've got bad news for you. Well, I'm I'm surprised there's bad news. I'm, especially there's only nine you. instead of no, 10. No, no, there's definitely 10. <laughs> That's bad news. Let me double check. Yeah, there's definitely 10. <laughs> But, uh, Pete, I know you're big on nuclear power. Yeah. I know oh. you're big on uh, a nuclear reactor at the end of every street corner. I think you said backpacks at one point. I think, no, that was your suggestion, but I agreed with it. Okay. Um, Everyone should have their own personal nuclear reactor. Yeah. If, uh, if we're serious about climate change, that would be the... Not in there. Not oh. in there, unfortunately. Oh, Pete. Yeah. <laughs> what I like... What are you going to uh, do? <laughs> I appreciate Nina's commiserations here. Thanks, Nina. No I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, uh, they weren't exactly heartfelt, but they were loud. Yeah. Um, so... Here's number one, though, which I really like. So making Australia a renewable energy superpower by ensuring that 50% of the nation's electricity is sourced from renewable energy by 2030 and empowering households and businesses to take advantage of cheap, clean, renewable energy and storage. I didn't didn't realise how plentiful, cheap, renewable energy was. I didn't realise that all we needed to do was just empower businesses and individuals to take advantage of it. I mean, we could have done this years ago. It's I, didn't, just, I didn't realise how easy it was. If only there was a dot point somewhere else mm. previously that said empowering people to do this thing that we like. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and of course, the point being, uh, most affordable power source is still coal and will always will be for a very long time. And if the government starts getting involved, everything is going to go really bad. But yeah. Uh, good luck, regional Australia, if the 50% of <laughs> cars have to be renewable or whatever it is. Um, yeah, so that's the energy policy. That's right. Well, it looks like the kids didn't get their way completely because I think they were asking for 100%. But Yeah, yeah, I did see like uh, the far left on Twitter are like, this policy doesn't go far enough. So they've well, effectively yeah. made an energy policy that pisses off both sides of the electoral debate. So uh, that Bill Shorten, he's a cunning political strategist. Well, yeah. All right. So what should we do next? All right. Uh, so we've also, over in America, we had a big showdown between The Economist and Ben Shapiro. That is right. The Economist versus Ben Shapiro. So uh, The Economist did a, a question and answer feature of the words used in the story that I read. A question and answer feature, which to me is an interview. But anyway, uh, last week about Ben Shapiro for his new book, The Right Side of History, How Reason and Moral Purpose Made the West Great. Check it out. Uh, we should interview Ben Shapiro about that. Write it down. Um <laughs> The headline of the Economist piece was Inside the Mind of Ben Shapiro, the alt-right sage without the rage. So, mm. obviously... Ben deep Shapiro, into the mind. So <laughs> They went deep into the mind with that one. Yeah, they went right in there. They went really... They went objectively. Yeah. They yeah. went searching for the truth. They read it because, obviously, as we know, Ben Shapiro is incredibly critical of the right and is... Uh, alt-right, yeah. Sorry, alt-right, yeah. 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 Good, that's, Good I'm not about to criticise them about doing... <laughs> but, 
Good for you, James. Um, and he's viciously uh, attacked by the alt-right. Ben Shapiro tweeted at The Economist, um, this is a vile lie. Not only am I not alt-right, I am probably the leading critic on... Her, sorry. Pro- <laughs> probably their leading critic on the right. I was the number one target of their hate in 2016 online, according to ADL data. I demanded retraction. So eventually The Economist changed its headline to Inside the Mind of Ben Shapiro, a radical conservative, whatever that means. Um, I don't know. I'm not 100% convinced they read the book, James. I don't think so either. Because according to the, accordingly, the book is full of criticism of the alt-right. Yep. And um, They definitely didn't go inside the mind. Uh, you know, didn't even drop Ben Shapiro one email to just be like, is this you alt-right? Um, this is the thing, though. Like, do we think, like, is this them screwing up or is this exactly what they wanted because they went viral with this one and the economist not exactly getting viral much these days their heyday is behind them this seems bait to me i look i reckon so you're so you're saying it's a cynical kind of attempt to yeah i don't them. think it was that well i'm, I'm now thinking because like if you go to the article now it leads off with the apology like so and even like editor's apology down the bottom of the article it's like at the top and if the top of your article is an apology for the resulting article, you're done goofed. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So maybe the editor said you're really stuffed up here. I think it's just incompetence. Right. I think that it's like he's a popular young guy yeah. who's, you know, on YouTube. Yeah. You know, so, oh, that must be the alt-right. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's not like... I saw him on Joe Rogan once. He must be alt-right. Yeah, so I don't think people, you know... I don't. I, I think there's a lot of bad faith lefties out there who understand the difference between various strands of the right and conflate them for clicks for, for clicks let's yes. say um and uh, but i also think there's a lot of people out there who just don't understand it yeah uh but no look, it's it's um it's such a clanger yeah that's it's a clanger they're done goofed and etc etc um and and yeah i just think like advertisers got money because the economists got clicks so i just think a few people are like oh i'm sorry about that and you know counting the benjamins i guess uh, <laughs> but there's also i'll also say there's people out there that think if you're like a liberal a smaller liberal and think and believe in stuff like freedom of speech and the rule of law, let's say, that you are a racist because they're inherently racist institutions. Um, so, and like, let alone him, like he's a conservative. So that's, you know, in yeah. their mind, even worse. Um, so there's that as well. But um, yeah. Well, when we have our own question and answer feature with Ben Jabiro, maybe we'll talk to him about we that. Should, we should put it to his manager. Uh, <laughs> we should. Uh, let us talk Brexit because uh, we haven't done enough of that. And... Uh, Pete has assured me that this is a big week. I, I'm, I'm skeptical. I said that before I looked into it, but before let <laughs> he me grabbed me by my shirt and screamed, "This was a big week for Brexit." Well, let me start with the biggest story. Last night there was 12 uh, protesters in the public gallery in the Commons who stripped down to their undies yep. to protest climate change. Got to go the whole way. If you're protesting climate change, got to go the whole way. Yeah, like you your bets with undies. Only care about your, the planet or not, mm. you know. And actually, well, well, we're on that. There was one bloke within that 12 who didn't take his jeans off, so they all got their strides off. And, like, there was lots of women in there who got their tops off. Yeah. He didn't take his strides off. That's a guy that missed the last meeting. (laughs) What are we doing? There's speculation that he choked right at the last minute. Absolutely. Um, What do you think? think? My thing is, with these protests, I just get this... No matter what they were fighting for, they could have been fighting for something I believe in clearly. They could have got all their clothes off for freedom of speech. Yeah, get it all off. If you do that... I want you to lose. Like, I really, like, I. no matter what you stand for, I want you to lose if you're going to do that kind of thing. It just annoys me so much. Oh, I'm, I reckon I'm pro-nudity. Yep. 
So in the House of Commons <laughs> on a serious protest, issue. And protest. Well, climate change isn't a serious issue. <laughs> yeah, but just like but it is still a kind of serious issue because it is impacting energy policy around the world. People are getting their clothes off. Absolutely not. I'm prone to the protests. All that's right. my. That's well, my argument. May God have mercy on us all next time there is a protest in Australia that Peter agrees with. So I'll quickly not bring your children. <laughs> uh, that's, I didn't think of it from that perspective. <laughs> well, <laughs> you should have said that at the start. Anyway, no, uh, so a few other things happened. They, so they, we had the, these indicative votes that I said probably weren't going to happen last week did happen. Um, they had <laughs> Nostradamus being over here. They had eight indicative votes last week. None were successful. They can put them in None the None were successful. Man, this Brexit thing. Which was a real turn up for the books. And then they had four more indicative votes like a couple of hours ago. And also none of them were successful. It did look like this kind of Norway-style relationship with the EU was coming uh, through, but yeah. it wasn't successful. Anyway, so basically, I won't go through all the boring details. It could all still happen. Yeah. One thing I'm noticing about Brexit happen. last week, Boris Johnson really puffing out his chest. Really yeah. throwing his shoulders back, walking around, man in charge. What was that? He's coming. Uh, I reckon he's going for lead. Like he's pretty clearly going for leadership very shortly. Theresa May's pretty much done. So mm. Boris Johnson, this is like Boris Johnson is the ultimate politician. Like he will just go whichever way the wind's going. And right now the wind's going no Brexit, and he's just waited until the moment's right, and then bang in the Telegraph, we're done. We need to deliver Brexit. Well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> And that's how Boris Johnson gets votes. <laughs> the he biggest, gets paid on board. The biggest story out of Brexit this week was the nerd of this thing. Yep. <laughs> Which is a, a terrifying shame for the state of politics in Britain. It's the best week for ages. Uh, all right. We, we are at loggerheads over public displays of nerdity. Anyway, uh, let us get into our question and answer, fe- question and answer features with uh, Christina Hoff-Summers and Kurt Wallace. Before we do, we should probably run through what the IPA has been up to this week because it was a big week for the IPA. Uh, we obviously have Kurt's report later in the show that we're going to be talking about. That was a lot of uh, good reading, and you can read that there. You can also read uh, Zach Gorman talking about the fathers of our constitutional inheritance. So if you are interested in the history of liberalism in Australia, that's on our website. You can also go and read and watch all of Gideon Rosner's great work covering the doctor, uh, the court case of Dr. Peter Ridd. He was live at the Federal Circuit Court in Brisbane all uh Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday last week. He was live tweeting it, so go to his Twitter account, Gideon C. Rosner, and you can read all the tweets. You can watch his videos reporting outside. You can also still go back and watch his interview with Dr. Peter Reid before the trial started. Um, yeah, we had a lot of great feedback for that. A lot of the videos went very well. People are really interested in the case and interested in what it says about the state of freedom of speech on climate change in Australia. Apparently when Gideon's, make, Gideon's making those videos, he's just like talking into a box. Yeah. Like, so he just looks like a crazy person, <laughs> which is, I can just imagine yeah, that yeah. being quite a funny image. Uh, yeah, it would be a funny image, but he's been doing great work down there. And he also found the time to write a great, great, great op-ed in the Sydney Morning Herald. Uh, let's not forfeit our own freedoms in the rush to silence terrorists. So talking about all the government's changes to live streaming and what, like and Facebook in the wake of Christchurch. That's available on our website. Um, you can, you definitely should go and read that. It's a really worthwhile article. All right. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening to the podcast. We're available on uh, Apple Podcasts, you know, any podcast app at all. So if you do have friends and family in your life who are listening to podcasts, make do, sure... We're jealous of you. 
What's it like? What's, what's love? Uh, make sure you're listening to... Uh, make sure you're getting them to listen to the Young IPA podcast. They can download it anywhere. And if you are listening through Apple Podcasts, make sure you leave us that five-star review. Uh, really helps us out with the ratings. Speaking of podcasts, we also... You know, the IPA is looking forward podcast going from strength to strength, putting out some really great episodes, taking a serious look at the issues facing Australia today and the deeper issues that you're not going to hear on Sky News or anywhere else. Um, so go and subscribe and download those. That's also available on every single podcast app. You can also listen to it through the IPA website. Uh, the IPA is looking forward podcast with Scott Hargraves and Dr. Chris Berg. And also leave that a five-star review on Apple Podcasts because it's a new show and we need to get it out there in the ratings. All right, Nina, if people are already subscribed to both podcasts and they still want to support the IPA's work even more, where can they go? Well, just visit the website, sanipa.org.au, and you can support us by either donating or becoming a part of our growing community. <laughs> That's my new tagline. And starting as low as $22 per year, you can become one of the Lotus Voice of Freedom in Australia. Fantastic. All right. See, uh, let's go to those interviews now. Sorry, jumped ahead in the show. I think one of the real big problems with also the feminism movement right now is tied up into all this intersectionality, feminism, identity politics on every kind of oh, level, yes. layered on top of each other. And Jacinta Price is an Indigenous woman from the outback of Australia who works in a community with lots of, um, you know, the, the issues that they are facing out there. And she spoke out about this and said, you know, because you're telling these people that they must preserve their culture at all costs, we're still getting forced arranged marriages of 14-year-olds and, you know, high, high issues of sexual abuse and rape. And she was pretty much told by the left to be quiet because it went against their narrative of, you know, that there's this is actually a fault with the Indigenous community and something that needs to be addressed within it. Um, so some a brave woman coming out to speak about legitimate issues for Indigenous women was not supported by the mainstream feminism movement, which I just found really, really worrying. Well, that's because we do not have a, an inclusive movement. And it might be that not, you know, if we had an inclusive women's movement that really mobilized women to kind of address them, it, it, it's, just, it's just historically women have done this and we could do it today, but we don't have the structures to do it. We just have a group carried away with eccentric issues. I don't say everything they do is bad. Some of it, you know, sometimes I'll find a study or I'll find a project that makes sense. But, you know, in the United States, the best thing we could do right now, if you care about sexual assault, is we have rape kits. And the most dangerous people that, that uh, do attack, you know, serially are like so sociopathic rapists, um, criminal rapists. And if you get the DNA, if you get... You know, the young woman who's had this goes, well, we have stacks and stacks of these kits and they never get tested. And just like a few months ago, they went back and they found, finally, they got the money to test them and found um, uh, this man. They located him, but he'd already uh, attacked like, you know, several more women. And so you start there. We could all agree to do that, conservatives and liberal. And then there are, there are programs that help young women um, be better prepared and um, that get the message to men. And, you know, just uh, there are effective programs, but they prefer the more radical approach, which is intersectionality. Unfor you know, well, there are different forms of intersectionality. Some is legitimate, and it's just 
people have complex identities and uh, they have to that has to be considered you can't take them as a a monolith and just talk about women because it's different if you're gay and if you're a person of color and if you're poor and all of that uh, can make uh, any policy that you have um, it needs to take into, into account if you're an activist or if you're making a policy or you're a lawyer or a politician you have to be aware of that but the intersectionality as practiced on campus is much more radical somehow it had a like a secret marriage with like radical politics so it means hating capitalism and carrying on about how bad men are and caring about, about you know how every major institution is rigged against women. No, it's not. That's ridiculous. Make distinctions. But they don't because of this, this ideology. And what's unfortunate is intersectionality is leading to tribalism. It's taking us backwards. It took centuries for people to get over seeing you know us versus this enemy out there. And that what you have to do, and I said this before, is you have to see, no, us and our common humanity. And that's how we make, that's how we get gay liberation and women's liberation and civil rights is a common humanity approach. But intersectionality, the radical version, it's not common humanity. It's the enemy. Check your privilege, you know, and this, this, they talk about a matrix of oppression with white able-bodied men on top so you're free to tell them to shut up and be quiet and listen and no that's no way to advance that's a way to take us back so I'm hoping we can get over that chapter (laughs) it's always really absurd to me as well because they throw out these accusations of your privilege without having any kind of prior knowledge of you I think it's because of this kind of collectivist mindset but um, you know, when I got protested by the co- Women's Collective Club, had women screaming at me that I'm a racist, homophobe, bigot, blah, blah, blah. Privileged oh, women privileged. who did not grow up with foster homes and all the... I mean, that must be infuriating. <laughs> yeah, I had a, on the radio this girl talking to me that I'm a privileged white girl and found out later that her daddy pays for everything. Yeah. And she's from a very privileged background and she was talking to a girl from a very difficult background. So it was just... They don't actually base this. It it comes down to you need to think of people as individuals, not as collective groups. And you don't know people's stories. And people that may appear to be privileged, you find out there can be terrible heartbreak and tragedy in anybody's life. That's so obvious. How could we lose sight of that? And young men, they, they don't know what has gone wrong and what they've had in their past. You can't tell until you be you recognize they're human. But um, and listen to their story. But now we've got this kind of tribal, you know, as I said, gender profiling, and you're free to have contempt for a whole group of people based on accidents of biology. That's yeah. not progress. That's bigotry. Yeah, well, um, I remember reading something by Camille Pagula about this new thing about they want, uh, in some parts of America, separate colleges again and to separate men and women again Um and she was saying, what what we fought to get into the colleges in the first place, it really does feel like sometimes we're going backwards with these, these kind of crazy... Yeah, there are politics. more. Well, you see, the thing is, they they must believe their propaganda. So they think that being at a woman, you know, at an Ivy League college, that's where you get the, the highest so-called, you know, the statistics showing that everybody's being uh, violated by the men in their midst. First of all, the studies are not, the studies are so flawed. They are usually done online with a very low response rate. And they'll, they'll, they'll say, what's a, 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 they take a 
climate survey to find what's the climate for sexual harassment. And then they come up with an epidemic. No, it's not an epidemic. You did a sloppy study with a low response rate, vaguely asked questions from, you know, uh, just a non-representative sample of young, young, young women. If they ask young men the questions, then they can see um, you'll usually get large, you know, complaints from men about uh, harassment in, on the college campuses. If that's what you're looking for, you can find men complaining. But it's unscientific, but it gets the young women thinking, oh, well, you know, I have to be, you know, th th that's when they start demanding um, special protections and seeing men as the enemy because they believe the propaganda, which is just so sad. It's sad for them, and as I said, sad for the people who are victimized because in none of this am I d denying that people, that domestic violence is a serious problem, that sexual assault is a serious problem, so serious that we should tell the truth about it and have sober research, not hyperbole and and spin. And we have too much of that. <laughs> uh, going back to the campus stuff, so yeah, Australia right now is at a point where we're starting to see the deplatforming of speakers, um, whether that be directly um, or through the student union or through outrageous security fees. And um, many groups such as the who I work for, IPA and Generation Liberty, are coming out and saying that there's a problem on campus, there's a free speech problem on campus. And there seems to be this thing for the administration that they want to pretend it's not happening. Um, yeah, well, what happens is, it, it happened to me, like, I would, a long time ago, I was warning about these things, and people would say, well, you're exaggerating, and it can't be that bad, and then it became so bad, it can't be stopped <laughs> on some schools. Now, I, I don't want to say this is all colleges in the United States. More elite, the more likely the women, uh, a, a critical mass of women at those schools think they are oppressed, held back by this dangerous, you know, male hegemony. It's absurd. It's, I, it, I'm, it just astonishes me they can believe that. And yet I see it from my, by my own eyes. And I go to campuses and they will come to protest me. And I try to explain that what they believe isn't helping them and it's not helping women in need. But uh, they'll sometimes protest. Or and I was at Oberlin College, this very precious liberal, art liberal arts college. Lena Dunham went there, if you know who she is. Yes. <laughs> and the students f fled. 30, so they came, they had banners, and they, you know, they had things like, Christina Hoff Summers, go home and take your internalized misogyny with you. How would I not take it with me if it was internalized? But anyway, they were <laughs> carrying on. And then 30 students fled. While I was speaking, they fled to a safe room with a therapy dog. I triggered a dog, <laughs> which I feel bad about. But anyway, um, it's just, it's, a friend of mine has called it uh, feminism hijacked by melodrama. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, what would your advice be to kind of Australia, who seems that they're kind of on the same path? Uh, you know, try to avoid it. Just look at what's happening in the United States. It's Look what's happened to the Women's March, the intersectional Women's March, you know, with the people with the pussy hats and all that. This was actually, to me, it looked like it could be the making of a, a real inclusive women's movement because a lot of women came to that, millions of women across the country and it, it had libertarian women it had liberal women it had radical women and then the excommunication started first they the leadership expelled um pro-life women they had they couldn't be sponsored and then oh people protested the pussy hats they were supposed to be 
transphobic. And then the leadership tried to be intersectional, but it ended up having women who turned out to be anti-Semitic and had very strong alliance with uh, Louis Farrakhan, who's a just a horrible homophobe, uh, anti-Semite, um, and uh, crazy, really. <laughs> um, but they... So they lost their following. They lost Emily's List. They lost the the, Demo- the national the Democratic Party who had sponsored them. They lost that. They lost um, the NAACP because they they became so tribal that they lost sight of humanity and ended up, you know, at the intersection of of homophobia and and anti-Semitism. Now, if your feminism is if is common enemy and filled with propaganda and animus anger towards another group you you might you know we don't have a history of making progress that way and it's not to me not an accident that they ended up with Louis Farrakhan and with uh, so look at the women's march and that's where that radical intersectionality takes you because it's tribalistic and illiberal and leads to authoritarianism and just bigotry and connected to that um, what would your advice be for young people on campus right now who you know don't identify with this really far-left minority of students trying to take control? You still have time because they, they haven't taken control as they have on some campuses. Free speech needs a lobby. Um, the, our democratic tradition, it's not perfect, but as the saying goes, it, you know, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the rest. And equality feminism is the worst style of feminism except for all the rest. It's don't make the perfect the enemy of the good because that's what happens. The intersectional radicals and so forth say, oh, well, we, what do they have in mind? We want to overthrow the white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. Overthrow it? What does that mean? What are you going to replace it with? We, I mean, it, they don't have a history of, of success, which uh, equity feminism does, and libertarian feminism. It's that There's a history of achievement and progress for women they don't have that they're promising it's pie in the sky so i would urge students to you know really secure the rights to um, intellectual diversity on campus free expression on campus and don't let your institutions of higher learning lose their way and become centers of orthodoxy and become you know be as one saying is like you should be afraid uh, not of questions that have no answers, but answers that can't be questioned. And that's what we have is too many too many answers that can't be questioned. That's the opposite of a university. That's one of the things I always encourage while I'm on campus is I find like a lot of conservative, libertarian, classical liberal, or even just centrist students tell me, oh, I don't think I can speak up in a lecture or I don't think I can oh, say anything. Oh, so you already have that here. In a tutorial because I'm going to be targeted or something like that. And I always say, say what you think because what you're at university to learn. And if you don't actually say what you think, you're never going to be able to test those ideas. And also, you never know who else is agreeing with you. So I think there's a lot exactly. of Exactly. That's what I found when I first spoke out and then I got pushed back and it was kind of unpleasant and I, I really wished I hadn't done it. Until I suddenly, I did lose some friends, but I made new friends. And I found out a lot of wonderful people that agreed with me. So you might, you know, you might as well be who you are and say what you think. But in, right now, I would recommend um, organizing a little bit around debates. Have debates. Make that uh, just a staple 
of your university experience, that you get smart people from both sides of a contentious issue and hear, hear them out. Keep that alive. And that, that way you keep the spirit of education and the, of the enlightenment alive. But every generation has to, every generation is challenged. There are always people who want to shut down debate and have all the answers. And, you know, we've, I'm sure in Australia this has happened before. It certainly happened in the United States where, you know, freedom needed a lobby. And, and we usually, ha we have rallied in the past. So I think we will again. And I think the thing for Australia, you have very strong traditions of, of freedom. So I'm, I think they will prevail in the end. But, I hope, you know, don't wait till it's too late or too difficult. <laughs> yeah, actually connected to those stories about the, you know, the, fem uh, the female movements in um, Britain and America, Australia was one of the first countries to give women the vote. We got it in 1894. Right. Um, and there was this really... Wasn't New Zealand even before? New Zealand just beat us. Okay. Uh, so there is this real <laughs> classical liberal tradition in, the, in women's movements in Australia. Um, when the Liberal Party was formed in Australia, which it's a bit... It's a bit weird here. There's liberals is... Oh, yeah, yeah, I yeah. know. I will. <laughs> <laughs> but um, when the Liberal Party was formed, there was more female membership than male membership. And there was female um, liberal groups, which my husband, who's a historian, is screaming the name of these women's groups <laughs> in the back of my head, but um, that uh, politicians had to go and talk to because they knew it was such an important and powerful voting base going to these speak at these women's groups. And I think there needs to be a bit of reflection on that and where the classical liberal female tradition came from yeah, in Australia I because I think it's really powerful. But also relating to debates, Generation Liberty actually runs a series of debates throughout the year all over campus and they have proved to be our most popular events. So we do a socialism versus capitalism. We're doing new ones on um, energy, renewables versus nuclear. And we get th over 300 students at these. So Excellent. students are still hungry for ideas. They're still hungry for debate. I just don't. I just don't think there's anything out there feeding their appetite. So, thank you so much for your time. Is there anything else you'd like to plug that you're doing? Uh, no, just uh, people can, uh, if they're interested in the things I've said, they can follow me on Twitter at C H uh, Summers S O M M E R S, and I have a podcast called The Fem Splainers. Yes, where my co-splainer and I um, discuss issues not only about gender but topical issues political issues, um, but we do it over cocktails. So it's not entirely um, serious, but mostly. <laughs> yes, I do listen to that podcast. I particularly liked your interview with Jordan Peterson because I thought you asked some questions that not many people not have many asked people him have before. asked him. Yes, we do that. <laughs> so I found that really, really interesting. But thank you so much for your time today, and I hope you enjoy your time in Australia. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Okay, we now welcome back onto the show IPA Research Fellow Kurt Wallace coming to us live from Canberra. It is budget night and Kurt is going to be our man on the scene talking to us about what we need to know. So Kurt, how are you going, man? Good, thanks. Thanks for having me. All right, so let's get into it. So what should be in tonight's budget and then what will be in tonight's budget? Okay, so what I would like to see is to see some actual spending cuts, some reduction in the growth of government expenditure and the using that uh, to fund both tax cuts and paying back the debt. Now, I don't think that's very likely uh, from the rumours that we've heard. Uh, they are predicting a forecast surplus, albeit a fairly modest one. Um, but the concerns I have is whether this is going to be a surplus 
uh, as a result of just increases in tax revenue as opposed to spending cuts. So on the surplus, John Roskam said last night on Q&A that on current projections it would take 140 years to pay back the debt. Um, what does that say about the size of the surplus? Well, it's actually, um, it could be even worse than that if you take into account uh, interest. Really? So you're debt. saying Johnny's wrong? Um, well, I'm saying I'll pass that, that on, mate. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying if you actually uh, look at the size of the, the surplus, the estimates are somewhere between 4 and, and $10 billion. That doesn't even cover uh, the interest on the debt. So we're going to need to see the, the surplus uh, grow a lot more than that if we're going to even start to pay off the principal of the debt. Yeah, because this debt chat is something like we've got a lot of young listeners to the show and the debt some debt topic can get a little dry, but it is important because it's going to be our generation that starts to pay it off and probably won't even be slightly started to pay off until grandkids, maybe the grandkids of the grandkids. So what would you tell young people about what's in this budget? Well, um, well, I'll have to wait and see exactly what's in it, but I think the, the thing about the debt is that I think the reason why people are probably not thinking about the debt as much is that our politicians have actually uh, have stopped uh, speaking about it and talking about it. If you remember when uh, Tony Abbott was first elected, when the coalition first came to government, uh, that was on the back of a lot of campaigning talking about the reckless spending of the Labor government. And at least Abbott uh, tried to uh, you know, bring the conversation back to the problem of debt and the um, the need to reduce government spending, but um, I haven't heard that much of that same rhetoric um, under subsequent uh, Turnbull and, and Morrison governments. So I think the thing is that what we need to stress for young people is that um, this debt does need to be paid back, and at the moment the, the interest that we pay on the debt is a large factor in our budget, so there's a lot of things uh, government could be funding if it wasn't for uh, the interest payments that had to be part of the budget. So we talked about uh, your report earlier in the show, um, and that's another thing that really affects young people is an inflexible labour market. I did give the punters the highlights, but why don't you just talk us through that and, and the reaction to what that has been? Yeah, so I've got a new report out, uh, Expanding Economic Opportunity, which looks at a uh, comparison internationally of Australia's labour market regulation. And in the report, I go through um, some indicators from the World Economic Forum's Global Competitive Index, which uh, has Australia over the last 10 years um, has really declined in a number of key areas in the labour market area. So labour market regulation, uh, efficiency, sorry, has dropped from us being ninth in the world to 22nd. But then when you look at some of the components that make up that index, uh, flexibility of wage determination, we were 10 years to we go 75, and now we've dropped to 105. This is out of 140 countries, so it's a pretty uh, dismal result. Um, and then ease of hiring and firing, uh, we've dropped from 46 to 110. And this this, this happens at the same time as uh, other countries such as uh, United States, United Kingdom, New Zealand, Canada, similar countries to us have really improved their position. So uh, the trend... Uh, in our labour market regulations is, is not a good one. Did you say 46 to 110? Uh, yeah, so that's for hiring and firing. So is that in one done, year? Um, no, so over 10 years, Australia's dropped from uh, 46 in the world to 110. And so this is compiled by asking, uh, this is a survey of 
executive. So Australian executives are asked about how easy it is to, to hire and fire people. Um, and so, yeah, that just represents a very uh, growing concern among executives in the ease of employing people. Of course, that impacts young people as well because uh, it's young people who don't get hired into entry-level positions because of that. Isn't that right? Yeah, so it's a, it's a really important one for, for younger people and particularly for people who lack a uh, experience in the workplace. So um, if it's difficult for people to, to fire people, then it's, uh, businesses are going to be a lot more reluctant in hiring people in the first place because if the employee doesn't work out, um, it's very difficult for the businesses to uh, to move on from that, that situation. So the younger people who lack um, experience and a proven track record in the, the workplace are really bearing the, the risk in this situation um, by uh, not being hired in the first place. So what needs to be the policy response here? How do we get Australia back on track? Well, in the report, I look at a number of areas where um, Australia's labour market regulation is, is overly um, burdensome. So I look at um, comparing the minimum wage uh, to other countries around the world. So Australia has one of the highest minimum wages in the world and by some measures uh, the highest minimum wage. Um, and so I look at so the relevance for this for, for young people and for um, low-skilled people is that the minimum wage effectively makes it illegal to hire people below uh, $18.93, which is the current minimum wage. So if you uh, are currently unable to clear that hurdle, uh, you, you're not afforded an opportunity in the workplace and ultimately won't experience the dignity of work. So it's really important that we um, maintain these entry-level jobs, which are uh, low-paying jobs, as a way for people to get into the, the labour market and to build their careers. So uh, one of the key issues is the minimum wage. The other uh, important thing in Australia's context is that we have a very uh, centralised wage determination process with, a high, with our award system. So... Um, there's a lot of inflexibility in the way that employers and employees come to agreements and there's a lot of um, mandated entitlements and conditions that um, really make um, employment really inflexible in Australia. Special K, this is your first time in the budget lockup. What in particular are you looking forward to? Um, it should be an interesting experience. Um, I'm just, I've got a few key numbers that I want to be looking for. So what I'm going to be looking for is basically the you know, the headline figures on, on debt and uh, on um, government spending and uh, tax receipts. So I want to look carefully at how this um, predicted surplus uh, is going to be brought about. So, um, yeah, I think I should be able to yeah, go through the the really interesting budget papers and uh, glean a lot from, from the numbers there. James, when he went to the budget lockup, said that he played uh, computer games after he got those figures. Is that something you're going to be doing or are you much more professional and committed than James? <clears throat> uh, well, I do have a lot of yeah, PDF uh, books ready to go in case it gets uh, too boring, but um, so- probably won't be playing computer games, I'm a bit more professional than Bob. All right, college boy. Um, but anyway, so last week we had Gideon Rosner outside the Federal Circuit Court in Brisbane giving the IPA uh, IPA fans updates on what was happening with the Dr. Peter Ridge trial. Now, tonight you are going to be going Facebook Live, going to give people the scoop from Canberra about what you saw in the budget. Uh, 
pretty big shoes to fill. We've Gideon uh, did a pretty good job of being the roving reporter for the IPA. How do you think you'll go? Yeah, it should be interesting. So uh, I get out of lockout at um, 7.30, so hopefully I'll be able to get some Somewhere around uh, eight to eight thirty, we'll be doing the, the live stream. So that'll be good to um, yeah report back to IPA listeners um, about what I've found uh, in the budget meeting. Terrific stuff. Um, I've got uh, one more question for you, Kurt. Now you're a very young man, twenty six, I believe. Is that right? Uh, twenty seven. Sorry, yep, twenty seven. Never ask a young man his age. So you have recently become a father. Why don't you tell us about how that's all going? Yeah, so uh, in January, I had my first-born son, Ezra, Ezra Ruben Wallace. Um, so he was uh, born name. in... Yes. Um, so, yeah, he's doing really well. Both mum and Baba are uh, going really well. So, yeah, it's been an amazing experience and, yeah. Uh, Kurt, we're going to let you go. You've got a lot of work to uh, get ready for for tonight. So uh, for all of our fans out there, make sure you're near your phone or computer. Just get to a Facebook account around 8.30. We're going to be going live the second we can get Kurt's uh, budget reactions on. Uh, and, yeah, we'll look out for that. And then greet you home as the returning warrior tomorrow. All right, so see you. Uh, see you then. Thanks, guys. Uh, see you, mate. Okay, thank you to Christina Hoff Summers and Kurt Wallace for those. What did we start calling them again? Question and answer features. Question and answer features, yeah. Yeah, okay, great. Uh, let us get into some stories that I made last laugh this week. And Pete, I guess the one thing that's been going around Australia a lot is this whole One Nation and the guns thing. I haven't paid too much attention to it because uh, my general feed of One Nation's news stories is zero, and I like keeping it that way. Uh, but Pete, tell us what happened. Well, I'm not going to go to... There's one specific component of it that I'd like to focus on. So we've all heard about the sting of One Nation by Al Jazeera. Uh, what I want to focus on is this particular aspect of it where, if I'll just scroll up, One Nation heavyweight Steve Dixon in this meeting was talking about how easy it was to change laws in Australia, explaining how much influence he had. He said, and this is just the most Australian thing of all time, I was a minister, mate. Once I found out about regulation, get out of my way, mate. I was just shooting legislation off everywhere. I didn't know how, I didn't know you could do it. Once you find out, mate, it's like finding the genie's lamp. You just do anything. I was changing shit all the time. It was great. <laughs> this country's cool. Elected officials, people. <laughs> this country's cool. How did he not find... All right, so there's a few things there. Like, one, all right, that's a terrible approach to legislation. <laughs> just to swing. You can do whatever you want, you mate. You can do whatever you want. Oh, what's that? Some independent enterprise? Yoink. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, get out of my mate, mate. I was shooting out legislation everywhere. The second thing is like, dude, did you only find out about legislation once you were a minister? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Come so. on. All right. Okay, hats off. That is good. Because I thought the only thing that people took out of that was that Pauline Hanson had some weird opinions about the Port Arthur Massacre. That is so much funnier. Yeah. Yeah. So that was just a little side. Like, like, and the thing is, okay, fine. He, this guy's from one of the <laughs> minor parties. There's definitely... There is no way there's not a few I'm sorry, I'm sorry. like coalition okay. and ALP ministers yeah. who have like, like had oh. the same process. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, just like being courted by lobby groups. No, no, I mean who found out the same thing about regulation. Like, hang on, what? I can just make stuff up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hang, so what you're telling me is, yeah. <laughs> or I've read this article and gone, hang on, what? Wait, can we do that as well? Yeah, can I do that? Uh, or just the idea of like just sitting back, just like, I, I like being courted by lobbyists. Yeah. Will I regulate? Perhaps. <laughs> Yeah. Make your offer. I have I have the 
the levers of power at my disposal. So yeah, that was my highlight yeah. of that. I guess, I guess my story. overwhelming feel with this One Nation story is like, did anyone change their vote? Like, did any One Nation voter go, I'm out? And yeah. Did any like 50 50 guy go, I'm in? Yeah, I mean, maybe a few people put them last, but uh, I mean, yeah. Yeah, people, I think they would have put them last anyway. People who hate them will hate them more. Yeah, um, but <laughs> just found out about regulation. Good Lord. Uh, uh, I'm going to talk about this one. So we've been talking about this on the podcast a fair bit. You guys might remember the uh, actor Jussie Smollett. He was on Empire and then he allegedly, or I don't even know what you say once a court case has been thrown out, but like there was insinuations. Well... But believe it or not, my, my legal yeah. expertise doesn't flow that far either. Yes. Uh, but anyway, uh, there seemed to be a story, uh, you know, may, perhaps wildly untrue, that he faked a hate crime against him. He paid people to beat him up by check. That's the weirdest part about That's all That's the weirdest part. He uh, purchased items by check that mm. were then later used to beat him up. The most alarming component of the whole story. Yeah. And then uh, police thought they had him for, you know, uh, a lot of things about you can't fake crimes against you because we've had to investigate this and we could have been investigating murders. It was news you know, to me. You've heard that there's a few murders in Chicago around uh, and the police got uh, diverged into this one. Anyway, all the charges were dropped because famous people are going to famous people. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so he uh, he got off, but he forfeited his $10,000 bail. Yeah. And he'd, done, and he'd done 16 hours of community service. That's going to really hurt successful actor Justice Mollett. But there was no admission of guilt and no conviction, obviously. Yeah, and then he's come out and he's done the, uh, you know, well, I'm, uh, I'm completely innocent and now we're going to try and find, like, what really happened that night. He's done, the, like, the OJ thing of, like, I'm going to find those killers. Uh, yeah, look, famous people are going to famous people. Like, you just can't stick things to them as... Uh, some posthumous documentaries have recently shown. That's right. Uh, and it, it sucks because the damage this does, you know, next time there is a hate crime, people are going to be questioning that. And, you know, there are actual hate incidents in America mm. and people are just like, this takes a sting out. Yeah. Jesse Smollett has done more to help Trump out than most people on the right have done in the last six months. That's uh, right, yeah. yeah. So next time something does happen, people, the victim of that will be, less people will believe them. Yeah. Um, so ho- hopefully this does damage his career, but... You know me, I'm sceptical. I, I still think all the Me Too people get let back in, and I definitely think Jussie Smollett gets let back into the community. Well, and James, there is a couple more aspects to this. So the prosecutor, Kim Fox, tried to recuse herself from the case in February because she's been in contact with uh, friends and supporters of Smollett, e.g. Tina Chen and for, uh, former aide to the First Lady, Michelle Obama, and Democrat nominee Kamala Harris. Harris yep. But so that, she was trying to recuse herself, which is a great word, by the way. Yeah. But she stuffed up the paperwork or something. So she didn't end up being recused. That's and that's like just fine. Everyone's fine with that. Yep. And then she this happens. Well, guess I'm still here then. And she was like, she was like, you know, we have enough evidence to convict. Yeah. But we didn't. Yeah. You know. And I've got a massive conflict of interest, so I should recuse myself. But I didn't. Yep. <laughs> Chicago anyway. is a wonderful, wonderful city. So here we are. All right. Uh, I'm going to talk about uh, Arkansas for a peep. Uh, <laughs> I nearly said for a peep minute. I want to talk about Arkansas for a minute, Pete. Uh, there is something about cauliflower rice going down. Well, there is. Last week, Arkansas became the first state in America to ban the term cauliflower rice. Uh, rice. Cauliflower rice. <laughs> you could still say cauliflower rice in Arkansas. Yeah, because according to the Arkansas government, uh, cauliflower rice isn't rice. Restaurants and outlets use the term cauliflower rice will face up to a $1,000 fine. Uh, 
State Representative David Hillman says, if you're not trying to deceive the public, this will not affect you or any of the outlets who sell these products. Have you got nothing to hide, James? Yep. Nothing uh, to fear. Nothing to fear. Uh, so... This, of course, has nothing to do with the fact that Arkansas is a state where 40% of America's rice is grown and yep. the cauliflower rice is, is massively growing in popularity due, due to being a low-carb alternative to normal rice. Oh, USA rice. Carbs, people. <laughs> yeah. USA rice is an organisation. High carbs. What's that, sorry? Rice, high in carbs. It is, it is. And USA rice, however, described cauliflower rice in 2018 as a bit malicious and maybe nefarious. Nina's face is hilarious right now. Like, I have one question in my head now. Okay. What is cauliflower rice? Sorry, <sighs> it's just kind of like... Is it? Is this rice? It's a rice substitute, yeah, but it's a lot so of So it's from cauliflower? I yeah. guess, yeah. But oh. you can't say that in Arkansas. Uh, good thing we're in the good old Melbourne, Australia. Yeah, so where can you can say it's whatever you want. extradition policy. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> uh, so I've got a few questions, Ben. Yeah, go on. Can you label peanut butter <laughs> or pineapples? Well... Which are neither pine nor apple. Pineapples are neither pine nor apple. And as I found out this week, peanut butter is not made from peanuts and it's not butter. Yep. It's made from legumes. Yep. Did you know that? Nope. What? I got, what? Peanut butter is apparently made from legumes, according to this recent article that I read. <gasps> yep. So, so I got con. But can you get arrested in Arkansas for saying either of those things? No, you can say that. You can say hamburgers, which yep. is like made of beef. Yep. Uh, there is other examples in other states. In Missouri, it became illegal to call not meat products meat, e.g. Veg- veggie burgers, which is like, like that's clearly not meat. Yeah, uh, the, or, the first word is veggie. Who's, the word who's vegetable getting, in that. Who's getting confused on that one? Or tofurkey, which is like tofu turkey, which sounds abhorrent <laughs> and maybe should be banned. Right, maybe if okay. you offered me tofurkey at a dinner... I'm not only leaving, I'm destroying three of your items on the way Just out. Just throwing the plate up in the air. I'm throwing the plate at the air, I'm kicking a television, and I'm Stealing grabbing a, a bookcase and throwing it somewhere. <laughs> that is that is the most ridiculous word I've ever heard in my life. So we're happy for Tofurky to be banned outright, but Absolutely. not the other things. Um, and of course, but those that meat ban thing is now a subject of a First Amendment lawsuit, and I assume that the Arkansas thing will be as well. Yeah, all right. Uh, so I'm going to close out the show with this one, Pete. Uh, IPA feedback. It So, you know, these are just some of the things that get left online for the IPA, just something for us to peruse and for us to reflect on. Some of the, Sometimes online we get criticised. Yeah, I thought... Extraordinarily. I thought John's appearance on Q&A would get a few more uh, IPA feedbacks than I thought. Mm. I, I mean, John did really well, but that's never stopped Twitter before. But anyway, Twitter does seem to be pretty uh, just calm. With uh, John's appearance. Uh, the only one I really saw was uh, Dr. David Zyngia saying, Roscom as a rich white Christian male, you have never suffered hate speech. Which um, feel seems like to be hate speech in itself. Yeah. Very similar to hate speech That's in the sense that you're calling him something based on his race. Yeah, just Maybe. appears to be. Anyway, Craig Carey uh, said, John Roscom has nice cufflinks. So you get the good and you get the bad. That's the game, isn't it, yeah. James? Uh, sometimes they're going to compliment your cufflinks and sometimes they're going to... Uh, call you a white Christian male. They are great cufflinks, but you had another one, didn't you, about Daniel Wilde? Yes, I did. So, uh, Daniel Wilde, this is the reason I wanted to do it on the show. I thought Q&A would be good, uh, but I wanted to close out with this wonderful bit of feedback on Twitter for our good boy, Daniel Wilde. And I hope he's listening, because this is important. Yes, because he's a staff member. Come on, we're a team. But uh, Rob Mitchell, the federal Labor member for McEwen, uh, he responded to uh, Schloss Lulsville Schadenfreude, uh, one of Australia's uh, foremost political commentators on Twitter. Uh, So Sky News Australia, Daniel Wilde was interviewed. Schloss Lulsville Schadenfreude said, Lol, the IPA should be children 
put in a chaff bag and thrown out to sea. Hmm. Now, the first four words of the, the Daniel Wild Sky News Australia tweet was, Daniel Wild, I think the Greens are much more extreme and a great, much greater threat to the Australian way of life than One Nation. So, Rob Mitchell, federal member for McEwen, uh, Labor Party, he, here's his feedback. Quotation mark, Daniel Wild, colon, I think, space bar, space bar, quotation mark, Space bar, 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 yeah, nah. What? That's his feedback. I didn't realise he was a politician. Let's, uh, yeah, he's a politician. And uh, do, you want, do we want me to read it again? Yeah, go through it again. Quotation mark, annual wild, colon, I think, space bar, space bar, quotation mark, seven space bars, yeah, nah. So he forgot so the day at the feedback? start of Daniel. So you forgot the day at the start of Daniel. Um, Hosed? I let's 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 Labor, let's, let's a Labor Party function. That. What time did it come out? It came out at twelve eighteen a.m. Yeah, okay. Uh, the golden hour for political that's, feedback. That's when you should tweet. Twitter <laughs> <laughs> should re- they shouldn't, but they should really have a like twelve o'clock. You know what? We're just going to put that in drafts. We're going to show it to you at eight thirty tomorrow morning, and then you can decide. I reckon that should be the only time you're allowed to tweet. <laughs> yes, we so much better. Yeah, it should be like a reverse breathalyzer, where only after point oh six can you blow into your phone, and then it's like, all right, let's tweet some. Oh, it'd be so much better. <laughs> let's tell Australia what it needs to it's know. It's such a cesspool. If you just knew everyone was hosed, you'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh man, imagine the people like uh, Brian Stelter who like live on Twitter, and you know, the server signs their brigade. They have to be drunk twenty four seven in order to tweet. Like, all right, I got to go to the bar. I got to tell Trump he needs to resign. <laughs> Be great. All right, so uh, annual, I think, up. space by space by, yeah, nah. Um, great, great feedback. Searing political feedback, and much like uh, the, the guy who found out about regulation only after he was minister, these are our elected these, officials. Yeah, these, are the, these are the people that and have, in a know. terrifying sense, sometimes we get the elected officials we deserve. <laughs> yeah. All right, uh, on that terrifying note, that is it for this week's show. Thanks again to Christina Hoff-Summers, Renee Gorman, and Kurt Wallace for those interviews. Oh, no, for those question and answer features. Uh, really interesting stuff. Make sure you're watching Kurt on uh, Facebook Live tonight. He's going to be giving you his budget recap notes around... 8.30, maybe 9, uh, whatever time we can get that out. So be on your phone around then. We'll go live. Uh, and then if you are listening to this after Tuesday, you can go to our IPA Facebook page and it should be on our YouTube channel as well if you want to see Kurt's live reactions. Uh, thanks, guys. Thank you guys so much for listening and downloading this podcast. We're available on all good podcast apps. If you do have people in your life that are also listening to podcasts, make sure you're getting them to listen as well. It's the best way to grow a show is through word of mouth. So if you are enjoying the show, tweet about it, Facebook it, uh, comment on the IPA Facebook page, how much you're loving the show, just get the word out. And if you are loving the show a lot, leave us a five-star rela- five star rating on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. really helps us out with the rankings. We've also got the IPA's Looking Forward podcast. If you just wish Pete and I would take things a bit more seriously once in a damn while, then you'll really enjoy the IPA's Looking Forward podcast with Scott Hargraves and Dr. Chris Berg. Uh, they will take uh, they come out on Wednesdays and they're all also on every good podcast app. Leave them a five-star rating too. All right, Nina, if uh, people want to become members of the IPA, maybe they want to donate to the IPA if they're already a member, where can people go if they want to? I can't wait to hear Nina's fresh new line. Yep. Yeah, just visit the website, ipa.org.au, mm-hmm. and you can support us by donating or become a part of our growing community of the IPA. Yay. And starting as low as $22 for you, you can become one of the loudest voice of freedom in Australia. Was All that right. market tested, that new line? I'm trying to see if which one works better. Okay. Nina locked me in a room and wouldn't let me leave until I liked one of her new intros. It was a hell of a Sunday afternoon. All right. Uh, see you guys next week. See you.